Welcome to Keith Knight Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute podcast. Today I am joined by Kristen Hawkins. She is the president of Students for Life Action and Students for Life. She's also the host of the Explicitly Pro-Life podcast. Find her at kristenhawkins.com. Links will be in the description below. Miss Hawkins, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me today, Keith. Of course, I saw so many of your videos on YouTube, so I wanted to give you what I have found to be the top 10 most compelling pro-choice mm-hmm. questions. Um, now, before we get into that, you had a great question where you would ask someone to explain what an abortion is. And mm-hmm. it was interesting that this uh, pro-choice advocate was not able to define it, to which I said, uh, well, maybe I need to embrace some humility. Maybe I don't know what it is. Please tell us, before we go through the arguments, so we're on the same page, what does it mean to have an abortion? Sure. Well, there's different types of abortion depending on uh, the development of the child, how old the child is in utero. The most common type of abortion is committed in the first trimester. Uh, And that type of abortion will either be used... um, would be a DNC procedure, a dilation curatage procedure, a suction uh, abortion, or an abortion pill uh, would be used. Pills would be used to end the pregnancy and end the life of the child. A DNC procedure where a, um, a looped shape uh, curette is inserted into the woman's vagina, into the birth canal, into the uterus, and it is used to scrape the lining of the uterus where the new organ that is forming that the child actually self-directs the placenta uh, and the child is attached to the uterine wall. Uh, And this removes the child from the uterine wall. uh, And then the abortionist is able to just basically, you know, shove uh, the pieces of the placenta and the child out. Suction aspiration abortion, they use a long shaped cannula uh, it's about 12 times more powerful than uh, va- your you know, household vacuum cleaner suction. Uh, same uh, idea. The cannula goes up uh, through the mother's birth canal into the uterus, and the child and the placenta is just sucked out. Um, the abortion pill, with the chemical pill abortions, um, these are very dangerous abortions. This is something that the abortion industry has been really using COVID as an excuse to push through. Um, and with the help of the Biden administration, they've been able to take all the risk evaluation mitigation strategies away from these pills. This is something that Bill Clinton uh, and his administration had assigned with the use of these pills because they have been linked to death in women. Uh, these are now the most common type of first trimester abortion. The first pill is taken it's supposed to be taken in the abortion clinic after the abortionist has confirmed pregnancy since December. That isn't the case. They don't even have to confirm that she's pregnant. Um, they don't even have to confirm the location of the pregnancy to make sure she's not experiencing a life-threatening atomic pregnancy. She can take the first pill at home. The first pill starves the child. It stops uh, progesterone, the hormone, um, from getting to the child, to which allows the child to grow. Uh, and then the second pill is taken a few days later. And that is a pill that basically starts uh, the abortion. It starts the contractions from half from uh, they start the contractions. And over a period of days and weeks, she has the abortion at home. Um, and we call them toilet bowl abortions because she is advised by the abortion uh, clinic 
to when she gets really heavy cramping and bleeding just to go on the toilet bowl, not to look and to keep flushing. So that's the first trimester. Second trimester abortions are D&E dilation uh, and evacuation abortions. Uh, they also, they still have that curette, that loop-shaped device, but what they first they do after um, softening the cervix, they can go into the cervix with a sofa clamp. Um, and this clamp uh, goes in and grabs pieces of the child. Uh, the child is in breech position. Uh, so the feet uh, are grabbed first. So a leg, a leg, uh, an arm, an arm, then the, the trunk. So the midsection of the child uh, and the abortionist is advised to grasp the fetal part, um, twist and pull. Uh, and then finally the head will be the last part. Um, and so that is actually how the child is literally dismembered in these types of abortions. And you don't have to believe me, you can go to National Abortion Federation up until, I, I know a couple of years ago, the last time I was on their website, uh, they actually spelled out how to commit these abortions right on their website. Uh, after that, after these, you know, what they think all the parts are uh, pulled out of the mother, uh, the child is dismembered, they insert the curette, scrape the lining of the uterus, uh, and the goal is to make sure they get the placenta and any other parts of the child to reduce the risk of sepsis or infection. That's a second trimester abortion. Um, the third trimester abortions um, do happen. Some people it's funny uh, on campuses will like to argue with me that third trimester abortions don't happen, but I literally know the people who, who um, do them. I can tell you where their abortion facilities are. You can go to Google and type in nine month or eight month uh, abortion and you will find Dr. William Hearn in Boulder. There's a clinic Southwest Women's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, there's uh, there's Dr. Carhart who's outside of Omaha and outside of Washington, DC. Uh, these abortions, um, the most common type of abortion for a third trimester now is um, we call them heart attack abortions. Using ultrasound guided technology, the uh, abortionist will try to get as close to the heart as possible. And they have a syringe, long needle, very similar to the needle they use in aminosynthesis. Uh, and they will inject uh, potassium chloride or a, a, a drug called digoxin into the child. The goal of which is to produce a cardiac arrest, a heart attack in the child. Uh, after that is done, they will insert uh, seaweed sticks, lumeria, into the woman's vagina to soften uh, her uterus. Uh, I'm sorry, her birth canal um, and her cervix. And she will go back to the abortion facility two to three days after. Uh, and then the thought being that her cervix is ripe and then they can just kind of pull the child out. She will deliver a dead child. Um, that is the most common uh, today a version of how they commit a third trimester abortion. Let's get into the top 10 pro-choice uh, claims here. Her body, her okay. choice, a woman is an autonomous being and bodily autonomy is a basic human right. A fetus, which is biologically dependent on the mother for sustenance, has yet to acquire bodily autonomy as it cannot self-govern due to this dependence. A fetus is not its own being. Her body, her choice. What do you say? Okay. It's always funny how um, uh, people who constantly demand that uh, we follow the science 
um, or that we don't follow the science. Uh, but yet when it comes to this actual argument, literally deny the science, uh, literally deny that a child is in fact, it's unique whole human being that has its own body. And actually you could argue has its own autonomy uh, for their body. Yes, that child's body is located inside of her body, but he or she has her own bodily autonomy. This is a medical fact that the child is actually a separate individual, a separate human being with his or her own sex, his or her own DNA, his or her own blood type. Um, you know, when I was pregnant with my children, with my boys, I suddenly did not become a man, uh, even though um, inside of my womb, there were growing male genitalia. Um, that, that my body didn't change. My child's body was developing into a, a male body. Um, this doesn't work at all. And when, when you often you hear this argument from those who advocate for abortion, uh, they're, they're using it simply to say a woman can do anything she wants uh, with her body, uh, which actually is not true. We don't actually accept that uh, across our country as well. You know, my children have... Um, some, you know, life-threatening genetic uh, illnesses, you cannot go into a pulmonary ward at a children's hospital and start smoking and say, well, it's my body, my choice. No, uh, because when you start taking actions with your body to threaten the lives of other bodies, uh, the government has said, yeah, we can stop you from doing that. Um, also, this idea that the fetus can't self-govern um, doesn't actually hold weight unless you're willing to accept that infanticide should also be legal. Because the moment he or she emerges from the birth canal, do you think the fetus, now the infant, um, can now self-govern? What has changed? All that has changed in that child is their location. That, that little boy or girl is still completely dependent on their mother for survival. Um, and the mother would be held at that point criminally liable for a child's death if she neglects the responsibilities towards caring for her child um, or fails to uh, place her child with an adoptive family or utilizes safe haven laws, which allow her to freely give her child to state authorities, no questions asked. Pro-choice claim number two. What we're dealing with is mostly first trimester abortions in which this child you speak of is really just a microscopic clump of cells, not a living, breathing human being with thoughts, emotions, goals, and desires. Therefore, uh, an abortion is not killing a person. Hmm. Being human is the only criteria uh, that makes sense for you having the right to life protected in a just society. And it becomes uh, very much a slippery slope when you start saying you have to be human plus. You have to be a human being and have this quality or this functional ability. When you start saying that, you start eliminating 
other groups of human beings uh, who have already been born. And you don't have to look very far back in the history of our world, even in the history of our nation, uh, to see when it wasn't enough just to be a human being. But if you were a human being and your skin was darker than others, uh, somehow that justified other people being allowed to own you. Um, or in history, when we look back to the disabled saying if, well, you're a human, but your IQ level falls below this number, therefore that gives the state the right to do a hysterectomy on you without you or your parents' consent, so you can never procreate. Uh, we have all uniformly as a society said those things were wrong, uh, and we should never go back to that those moments, uh, but that's exactly what uh, we do when it comes to uh, the pre-born. Fundamentally, at the moment of conception, when the egg from the mother and the sperm from the father unite, so those are two parts. When those two parts unite, a whole unique human being comes into existence that's never existed before and will never exist again with a wholly unique DNA code. That is the moment that human life begins. It's a moment when your human life began um, and to start saying, well, you have to be able to breathe or you have to be able to experience a certain emotion or you have to be able to have certain thoughts. Um, that's not much different from saying you have to have a certain skin color or a certain sexual orientation or a certain level of ability or an IQ. The preborn child is a human being, is a member of our species. That's really the only box that needs to be checked. Forcing a child into the world to unwanted parents will lead to mass misery and much more crime than would otherwise exist because parents aren't there to properly rear the child. Mm. The solution to suffering has never been to eliminate the potential sufferer. It's to mitigate the suffering. Um, I would say a society where it's simply a status quo to kill someone who we deem uh, might suffer or who our data or stats might say or might indicate that might lead uh, a criminal enterprise at one point or uh, might end up in jail, I think that's going to lead to a more miserable society as a whole. Um, and I think that gets, once again, into a very slippery slope. And I, and I think this is really, um, this, is be, this is framed a lot as compassion, uh, that we are so compassionate as a society that we have decided who is going to suffer. Uh, and therefore, we are just going to snuff them out of existence uh, before they're born. I think this is a really um, veiled way of abdicating responsibility. Uh, and it's really, quite frankly, laziness to say we're just going to absolve ourselves of the responsibility uh, to seek social justice with some with a family or a woman or a child. We're going to absolve ourselves from responsibility to fix this problem um, by just killing you and snuffing you out of existence.
mandating that a woman needs to be a mother if she doesn't want to is equivalent to enslaving her. Slavery is immoral, therefore forcing a woman to have a baby and perform at least 18 years of labor for the child is akin to forced labor and slavery. Sorry, I'm going to try not to laugh at you. Okay, so the um, this is really interesting because unless you're, unless you're talking about cases of sexual assault, which 1% of all abortions are committed because of uh, sexual assault or incest or because the life of the mother is at stake, which I always find to be, you know, interesting because they always bring me this, these cases up when justifying their extremist views for 100% of all abortions. Uh, but I've never found anyone to say, uh, yes, I'm just in favor of abortion, just these terrible circumstances, but everything else I will work with you to ban abortion. No one ever says that. The left just uses uh, these terrible circumstances, um, these extreme circumstances to justify 100% of all abortions. Um, and so we hear this female slavery argument sometimes, but unless you're talking about sexual assault, unless you're talking about incest, um, you're talking about a woman who has engaged in a behavior that the natural biological consequences are the creation of a unique whole human being. I talk a lot about taking responsibility on campuses um, that, you know, no one in the pro-life movement, uh, you know, ever argues or advocates for limiting how many people you can have sex with or what type of sex you can have. Um, our argument is that if you engage in heterosexual sex, that you acknowledge you're engaging in a behavior that has consequences. And one of those consequences can be the creation of a unique whole living human being. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's a really important point uh, there. There's also an important point that no pro-lifer is uh, advocating that a woman be forced to parent her child. Every single state has a safe haven law that which allows a mother to surrender her child within a certain time period after birth. Uh, that time period varies from state to state. It can be 48 hours, 72 hours, even longer, with no questions asked, no criminal repercussions. Uh, if she doesn't want to utilize a safe, safe haven law, she also has the option of creating a closed adoption plan where a child is adopted uh, into a family and she will never, ever um, um, be, be in contact with that child or that child's family again. She can also make an open adoption plan where she places a child with a family of her choice and can actually remain active in her baby's life based on conditions that she sets aside. Um, I, I think that that, that, that is just, a, um, an argument that is used to basically get attention. Uh, and it certainly doesn't work. Uh, when it comes to parents of children who are older uh, than toddlers either. You know, if I decide at two years old that my child is too much of a burden, I got a new promotion at work, I really just can't handle being a parent of a toddler anymore, um, no one would say I was justified in drowning my toddler in the bathtub. Everyone would say that that was a murder. Um, I could argue that I was forced to be a parent, even though at two years old, I decided, nah, 
no more. Um, but the state uh, and our, our, our just society would say, no, you accepted that responsibility. Uh, and part of responsibility of being a parent is not killing your child. Abortion will exist either way, whether it's legal or illegal. If it's illegal, we'll have back alleys and coat hangers and very unsafe for both the baby and the woman. But if abortion's legal, it will be safe, legal, and rare. Actually, they've dropped the rare now that it's been 60 million. So actually, it will be much safer for the woman, both mentally and the child. It'll be quick and over. Therefore, abortion should be legal. Yeah, I mean, at first I'd say this logic is very inconsistent. I don't see the abortion lobby calling for rape or murder or bank robbery uh, to be decriminalized, even though it would be more convenient and it would spare the lives of the perpetrators. The whole point of laws is to protect the, the victim who could otherwise, you know, who those otherwise would violate them. Um, I, I, you know, bank robbery is a very... Um, uh, high risk profession if you choose to be a bank robber. Uh, but no one says, well, we need to make it legal so bank robbers uh, don't get killed. Uh, I would go back to also your myth uh, that legal uh, abortion means safe abortions or that by making abortion illegal, um, the, the, the argument we often hear is that tens of thousands of women will die every year from illegal abortions. We know from Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who was a co-founder of NARAL Pro-Choice America, who was an abortionist committing legal abortions in New York State in the late 1960s, uh, as New York was one of the first states to legalize abortion, that that is just a myth that he actually admitted later in life in the 80s when he became pro-life, that they made up the myth that tens of thousands of women were dying from illegal abortions. But you don't have to trust Bernard Nathanson because he became pro-life. Go to Christopher Teets. Christopher Teets was Planned Parenthood's very own award-winning. He won their highest honor, the Margaret Sanger Award, the, the award named after the eugenicist who founded Planned Parenthood in 1974 for his statistics research. Christopher Teets uh, researched uh, the death rate of women who were seeking legal and illegal abortions in the years before and after Roe versus Wade was handed down by seven men in 1973. In his estimation in 1965, uh, the number of women who died from legal and illegal abortions was under a thousand women. Um, you have Mary Calderon, Planned Parenthood's own medical director uh, in the 1950s, who came out to write that her estimation, 90% of abortions were being committed by physicians who she called in good standing in their community, uh, meaning, you know, they were just your, your family doctor who did abortions on the side for his side hustle, but didn't advertise it. Both she and Teats wrote in the late 40s and 50s that, you know, the threat for women dying from abortions was actually very low because of the invention of penicillin of antibiotics, because the highest risk to women, uh, especially before ultrasound, uh, was infection or sepsis. Final question. Thank you so much for being generous with uh, your time, Ms. Hawkins. If a woman is raped, let's say, well, this is about 1% of abortions. Okay, well, mm -hmm. then we could still say this is a lot of potential suffering. And this poor woman now sits for months on end with this rapist baby mm -hmm. in her stomach who she's now giving birth to. This is one of the worst cases scenario. What if a woman is raped, then is abortion morally justified? 
Hmm. Rape is a horrific crime and rapists should be found and they should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. If she, if she is raped, she's going to need two things, support and justice. Support, she's going to need in every way, emotional, physical, psychological, because rape is a horrific trauma. It's one I want to wish on my worst enemy. Um, it's a crime to violate a woman's body. And it also, it's a crime to make her pregnant without her consent. And the pro-life movement does stand ready to support uh, women who've survived sexual assault. Um, you, if you research the pro-life movement, you know, we have more than 3,000 uh, pregnancies help centers already in existence have been supported and sustained in our communities for nearly 50 years. Um, abortion, you know, simply gets rid of the evidence of the crime. It gets rid of the inconvenience of having to stand with her and support her for an extended period of time. I actually find this to be a very um, lazy argument from the left that, oh, if she's raped, she can just have an abortion. Having an abortion isn't going to end the trauma that she's endured. In fact, this is a lifelong pain uh, that she will experience. But it's almost like um, it's almost like a check the box situation of oh yeah, I, I I help women who have been raped. I've advocated for abortion. There you go, done. I've done my social justice work. I've I've stood in solidarity with her. I think it's very lazy to push a, another act of violence upon a woman who's just experienced uh, an act of violence, um, and because it's it's not going to make her forget about her rape. It's only going to have her, you know, pushing her into the hands of an abortionist who profits off of her despairs, who financially profits uh, from that. Uh, it will only make her question and wonder for the rest of her life who her child could have been. The other thing she's going to need beyond support is justice. She needs her perpetrator to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Um, you know, I find it ironic uh, that the Supreme Court doesn't allow even rapists to receive the death penalty, not even child rapists. But yet the child is put to death for the crimes of his father. That doesn't make logical sense. If you think about my father, if my father would go out today and commit a rape or commit an act of terrorism. There would be no one uh, in our society on CNN or MSNBC, well, maybe MSNBC, but no one in a logical society would argue that I or my sister should be put to death for my father's crimes. And when I bring that up on campuses, uh, students innately go back to, of course not. No one would argue that. And I say, well, why? Why can't you argue that I should be put to death for my father's crimes? And they, and they say, well, it's because you're a, you're a living, breathing human being. And so that question always goes back to what is it? What is that child in, that, in, the, in the womb? Is it simply a clump of alien cells or is it a member of our species that deserves uh, protection? Uh, thirdly, I would say that um, I would say beyond the, the support and the justice, I think it's a very regressive view uh, to hold that because someone was conceived and rape, therefore they're less valuable. I just had um, a good friend of mine, Ryan Bomberg, on my podcast the other week. He was conceived in rape. His mother courageously chose to place him uh, with an adoptive family. Uh, he considers his mother, who he's never met, doesn't know, uh, a hero. 
but I think it's actually a regressive view because if you were were thinking about this the other day, like there was a period in time in our world that if you were conceived out of wedlock, you were a bastard. You couldn't inherit property. You couldn't do certain things. You couldn't be at certain places because you were who your father was and who your father was married to at the time you were conceived. This is exactly what we're literally seeing argued on MSNBC and CNN right now as we await the pending Dobbs decision is that children conceived and raped. And by the way, there are thousands. The view is that like every single woman who gets who's raped suddenly gets pregnant. That's not true. About 5% of women who are raped, who survive rape, become pregnant. Half of those women actually choose life. So there are literally tens of thousands of people walking around here in America today who were conceived in rape, who we're literally arguing their lives don't have any value. Excellent work. I definitely recommend people check out uh, KristenHawkins.com. The podcast is explicitly pro-life. You'll get excellent gems like a very confident college student coming up saying, why don't you focus on uh, th- these women who are already in shelters and uh, Miss Hawkins will just say, is it all right that the American Diabetes Association doesn't focus on cancer? And then the student will be humbled for the first time in their life coming up uh, with uh, so w- with something they haven't heard before. Links will be in the description below. Thanks to everyone for watching the Libertarian Institute. Miss Hawkins, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Have a great day.